Welcome to The Green Rush, a podcast about the intersection of cannabis, the capital markets, and culture. On a weekly basis, hosts Ann Donahoe and Nick Opich of KCSA Strategic Communications speak with the business leaders, financial experts, cultural icons, legislators, and generally interesting people moving the cannabis and psychedelics industries forward. This week, Nick and Phil Carlson are back for a new episode with special guest Brian Schinderly, founder and managing partner at Solidum Capital Advisors. Brian joins us this week to discuss his journey from investor to advisor to his founding of Solidum Capital Advisors, what he is seeing in the capital markets regionally and by state, and his cannabis industry forecast, including his thoughts on safe banking. If you're interested in learning more about cannabis capital markets and Solidum Capital Advisors, visit the links in our show notes. Also, be sure to follow Brian and Solidum on LinkedIn. So sit back and enjoy our conversation with Brian Schinderly of Solidum Capital Advisors. All right, Brian Schinderly, thank you so much for joining us. Um, managing partner and founder at Solidum Capital Advisors. Um, Brian, can you first introduce yourself to our listeners, give them some background on Solidum Capital Advisors and what initially brought you to the cannabis industry? Yeah, so um, I was a uh, private equity uh, and hedge fund guy until 2017. Uh, so spent about 20 years uh, in those areas, did a lot of um, distressed and special situation investing, uh, managed, you know, both credit and equity portfolios when I was a hedge fund guy uh, and um, decided that I wanted to sort of get back to some of my roots uh, when I left in 2017 in, in, as far as uh, investing in more private companies and trying to be uh, an advisor and um, potentially, you know, board participant in, in some of those types of companies. I knew at the time that I would probably uh, uh, do some digging and some research on the cannabis side um, and um, uh, was, you know, starting to get a little bit geeked up on some of the medical research that was coming out and uh, piggybacked off of um, two or three friends that were also ex-hedge fund guys who had um, started making some private investments in the space and tagged along with them to some uh, conferences, read everything I could get my hands on on the medical side. And really by the end of 2017, you know, I had pretty much gravitated to where I was spending 100% of my time on cannabis stuff, um, primarily um, as an investor, uh, but also um, starting to work in a capacity where I was doing doing some advisory work as well. Um, one of my um, bigger projects, I, I was in, sort of an early investor in, in the space in um, companies like GTI and Ascend Wellness and um, Grassroots Cannabis. And a number of others, by the way, that didn't turn out nearly as well as those three, um, <laughs> for the for, for the record. Um, and um, uh, along the way, I had some friends who set up um, 
a cannabis venture capital firm named Altitude Investments, and they asked me to join their advisory board. So, you know, got a, a, a really great window into the space um, by being uh, part of their advisory board and, 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 you know, sort of seeing their transaction flow and participating in the deals through them. Um, sometime around, you know, the end of 2017, um, through my investment in Grassroots, um, I, you know, I had, had, had reconnected with the CEO of Grassroots, who uh, was a guy that I knew and, and had crossed paths with, paths with uh, during my time on Wall Street. And they didn't really have anybody on the team that had a more traditional institutional investing, uh, M&A slash um, capital markets experience. Um, so... I sort of became that guy as far as um, providing some advice to the team at Grassroots. And, and, you know, at the time they had won licenses in a couple states, but pretty quickly, um, you know, had, had won, a, uh, won a few new states and uh, we're looking to expand and we're looking for ways to, to raise some, some additional capital. So I got, I got involved in all of that, um, ended up on the board of one of their operating companies, um, and one day the three founders walked into, you know, sort of pulled me aside and said, look, would you join the C-suite and run strategy, finance, capital markets, M&A, investor relations, kind of, um, kind of, uh, what I like to call all the, all the fun stuff, if you will. And, um, so, um, sorry about that, by the way, at any rate, and, um, um, so, uh, you know, I, I got sucked in pretty deep at that point. So, you know, I, I had not worked in an operating company since college. I'd always been, you know, after, after graduate school, I'd always been on the uh, banking or investment uh, side of, uh, of the coin. So um, it was a pretty interesting, uh, uh, you know, change for me uh, to sit on the other side of the table and to, you know, talk to investors as opposed to being, courted uh, as an investor, you know, kind of in my old days. And um, so pretty exciting time. Uh, grassroots went from about 100 employees to 1,100 employees when we, when we uh, closed the sale to CureLeaf. Um, and we went from, you know, I don't know, three or four states when I sort of joined to uh, 11 states ultimately. And um, so I'd never, you know, again, never been in an operating company, or at least not, not since I was, you know, 20, 21 years old, and had never been around anything growing like that. So just, you know, being part of the team and, and uh, trying to manage that growth and trying to figure out how to uh, raise the capital to support that growth and, and um, you know, a, a pretty exciting time. Um, we were uh, on a path to go public, and, and that was really, uh, you know, um, uh, sort of the, the crux of my efforts, you know, to, to map out the go public strategy. And, uh, we had a, um, we had a shell company in New Brunswick picked out and, you know, under contract, we had, uh, the first 40 million in the order book, um, for the, uh, for the RTO, we had the bankers selected when, uh, Cureleaf kind of loudly knocked on our door and said, Hey, would you hit the pause button? And, you know, can we talk about potentially, um, merging the two companies? So ultimately, uh, we, you know, went into stall mode on the IPO and, um, you know, we're able to work out a transaction that, that, that uh, made sense to uh, merge um, grassroots in, into Cureleaf to form the largest cannabis company in the world. 
So pretty, pretty exciting times, obviously. And, um, took us, uh, exactly a year, almost exactly a year to get it done, to get all the regulatory approvals and, uh, all the other, you know, check all the other boxes, given all the states that were involved in all the other, you know, hurdles that we had to go through. And, um, a lot faster so I, than, than, than they are now, right? Like, uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, we, we, um, the, uh, if you recall, you know, under the former administration, the attorney general, uh, did not, uh, particularly like cannabis. So, right. Yeah. Yeah. So each of the, each of the cannabis, uh, uh, mergers that were announced, you know, had to go through stage true stage two, um, hard Scott Rubino approvals. Um, right. and, um, you know, I'll never forget, you know, our first conversations with the guys at the justice department and our attorneys, they said, do you have any reason to believe that there are any anti-competitive issues here? And I said, no, <laughs> <laughs> no, but, but I, I, I think, I think the total bill to get, uh, all of the regulatory approvals through the, uh, attorney general's office was something like $1.8 million and, and six months worth of work, it was a you know, but uh, but it was typical of the time, you know. That's what every uh, that that's what all the large um, cannabis deals were going through at the time. So now, after Cureleaf came in and bought Grassroots, did you stay with Cureleaf for a little bit, or did you just go in and form Solidum? You know, how did well, that? So so Solidum had been formed in 2017. So. Right. Um, uh, I worked for a, uh, you know, a large, uh, hedge fund out of Chicago. And, uh, when I left literally the day after I left, I formed Solidum as a, uh, you know, family office slash personal investing entity, but also an entity that I could do, you know, advisory and other work under. Um, so it, so Solidum was already in existence had already made, you know, multiple investments had already, uh, done a number of things. Um, it was dormant, obviously, during the time when I was, uh, you know, at, you know, an employee at uh, Grassroots. Um, they gave me an exemption to, you know, if I needed to tend to something that, you know, I, I had already been involved with um, or make a follow on investment or do something like that. I was, you know, I was uh, free to do things like that. But uh, I was working full time at, at, at Grassroots at the time. So really, what, what uh, um, I, I stuck around for 45 days after the merger closed to help with transition items and to make sure that some, you know, appropriate handoffs were being made. Um, and, uh, but I invested in everything, you know, at, at the closing date. So my work there was, was done in my opinion. You know, I, I, I had kind of, uh, you know, gotten the company to where I wanted to get it to. And it was the appropriate time for me to move on. So I basically just went back to Solidum as a full-time, uh, full-time exercise. So with the banking sector, it, it, with banking or not with investment bankers, I guess in this or advisors in this um, sector, it, it's kind of shrunk over the last couple of years. You know, there are still some guys doing deals, but you know, what makes you guys unique from the others that are, that are currently operating in this space? Well, so, um, so, uh, um, in 2018, when I was at Grassroots, you know, I, I went to Canada, you know, numerous times because that's where all the financing was was occurring, and um, there really were no U.S.-based uh, uh, investment bankers. You know, they, they they were really all the Canadian guys, and you know, candidly, was very let down by the quality of um, 
of the professionals, you know, in, 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 in the cannabis space. Uh, and some of the um, advice and some of the fees were just outrageous. And uh, I just uh, felt that we needed boots on, you know, our, our own boots on the ground up in, uh, up in Canada. And uh, one of my investors, um, uh, who I had told that story to, said, hey, I've got a guy who's fantastic. His name's Aaron Sauls. He uh, has a boutique up there uh, named Stoke Advisory. I think it'd be a great guy for you to sit down and just talk to. And uh, Aaron and I got together. Ultimately, that led to a relationship where um, I, I hired Stoic um, on retainer for grassroots. You know, as a startup, we didn't have the budget or the, you know, or the uh, bandwidth to really build out, you know, an M&A or, or capital markets team fully. And so um, Aaron and his team really became that for me when I was at grassroots. And we decided when we left or when I, when I, you know, when, when, when we got Cureleaf over the, over the goal line, the Cureleaf grassroots deal, which was not a foregone conclusion because most of those deals were blowing up at the time. If you recall, you know, Med Men, Pharmacan blew up, Verano, uh, Harvest blew up, all, all those other deals blew up. Ours was really the only one that didn't blow up. Um, and, we made a pact, you know, late at night, one night that, hey, if we get this damn thing done, we're going to form a joint venture. And we're going to work on, on U.S. cannabis together. And I think what differentiates Aaron and I is that Aaron uh, spent time in an operational role in Canada. He was he was an investment banker to the space, was hired away to become uh, the CFO of Tokyo Smoke, which he ran and then helped merge that in, into Canopy. And then uh, decided that, you know, that, that, that he didn't want to really go back to banking um, in a formal sense. He really wanted to set up a more of a boutique. Um, I spent two years on the inside of grassroots. And I think the, the viewpoint that we bring to the table and the experience we, that we bring, having been on the inside running these companies, uh, as opposed to just being, you know, a pure, uh, you know, investment banker to the space, is a is a a pretty big differentiator in our in our thinking. Um, so, um, and and also, you know, I think uh, Aaron and I were both sort of at the point of our careers and the point of our life cycle within cannabis, where uh, you know we felt that um, you know we really wanted to work for more of a curated uh, list of clients. And uh, I guess that's a long way of saying that you know there are a lot of uh, you know, not as um, savory characters in the space or not as uh, trustworthy characters in the space. And we felt that we were in a position where we could, you know, sort of choose the people that we wanted to work with and, and, um, and really help, you know, help them build, you know, you know, sort of more value added businesses over time. So, um, you know, it, it, in, in retrospect, I, I couldn't have scripted that part any better. I mean, you know, Aaron's been a fantastic partner. Um, and, um, you know, it's, uh, there are five of us top to bottom. It's all that I'm stoic. You know, we are a virtual company. We run the company between Chicago and Toronto. Uh, we travel of course, when we need to, but, um, you know, we're in touch, you know, all day, every day, you know, we use Slack very, uh, aggressively to, uh, you know, run our projects and, 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 and run our business. And, um, it's just been a, you know, it's been a, it's been a very positive experience for me. I want to 
take a step back a little bit to to when you first began investing in this in the space, Brian, because it was such a different time. Uh, it, I think there was a lot of excitement. There was the new states coming online for for adult use, and there I there just was this momentum that seemed like it was it was unstoppable for the industry, which is a much different place than where we sit now. So you know, can you talk about you know wh- the those things back in the back you know 2017 that had you really excited about where the industry was going, and then how the industry has evolved to you know, what, what either has you excited or cooled on the industry right now? Well, so, so, um, uh, it's, yeah, look, the, 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 uh, change has been profound, right? I mean, back in 2017, there were funds established that only wanted to be picking, you know, picks and shovels. Right. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and, and that was the big, you know, that was the big, uh, byline, you know, we're, we, you know, we don't, we don't want to invest in uh, cultivation or or dispensaries. We want to we want to own the picks and shovels. We want to own the guys who are the service providers to the industry, right? And so there were funds that uh, are are really kind of you know no longer with us <laughs> because they've sort of blown away in the wind. Um, who pursued that strategy and um, and I think uh, you know to a certain extent you know that. I, I felt, you know, a little conflicted on that point. You know, I, I, I would have loved to have found the right picks and shovels investments to, to get rich. But in the end, you know, what really was the model um, that worked? And this is really what, you know, kind of hit me in the forehead when I was um, uh, putting money into, into GTI and, and Grassroots and Ascend and some of those companies was that, you know, ultimately you had to be vertically integrated and you had to, really control your supply chain and you really had to execute. I mean, it's a very difficult business. And I think people just assumed early on, I re, you know, I remember going to conferences and people would show a deck, you know, up, up on the screen at, at a conference and they would show these, all these different flags in different markets, mm-hmm. you know, like, Oh, look, we're in 13 States. We have, you know, but is it a business? Is it a portfolio? What is it? I mean, you know, I mean, you, you know, okay, you have one dispensary in uh, Delaware. Does that mean anything to anybody? Does anybody care? I mean, and is that any rational way to make money? Um, There's what, a lot of guys like that out there now, still, right? Still floating around that have like a few here and there, and but you know, like you said, they're they're those aren't going going. Look, to those, and those are, I mean, we're seeing a lot of activity actually on the M and A side. What we're seeing a lot. I mean, uh, there there are a number of trends and we could talk about some of the trends and stuff. Um, but I mean, one of the things we're seeing is that people realize, you know, I'm, I'm some scale in a state and I can't get to scale. And therefore, I'm better off selling this to somebody who can really, um, you know, fully utilize that asset and redeploying those proceeds into a state that's more strategic for me because I've got some other ingrained advantage in that state. So we're seeing a lot of realignments like that happening. You know, we're seeing people that, uh, you know, want to, you know, sell in two states and, you know, redeploy in two others. And, and, um, and that's a, you know, and and the, but the biggest, I'd say the, the biggest realization that I've had in the last year to year and a half, and the biggest thing that I've seen play out in real time is that the companies that are really best in class, uh, across the, across the industry. Uh, and I, I would put, you know, from the companies that we're close with, I would put 
GTI, I would put Ascend Wellness um, into the in, in, you know into the into that category. Um, are companies that have realized and figured out that they need to size their cultivation to their retail such that they're selling roughly 80% of their product to themselves to their through their own stores and their exposure to the wholesale market is therefore you know roughly 20% or less if you look at GTI it's you know something like you know 83% of their of their um, cultivation output goes goes through their own retail something like 17% goes to the wholesale market. Ascend is very similarly situated, sort of an 80-20. And, 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 and by doing so, you can get the full benefit of the vertical and you have you know, limited your exposure to the wholesale market. Um, the places where I've seen things work out horribly badly um, are, are, are people that went into to states like Massachusetts, Pennsylvania, other places, uh, as cultivation only. And therefore, and you know, when, and, and when flour was selling for 4,000 a pound, it was easy to make money. You didn't have to be a particularly, you know, good operator. You could make up whatever dumb sounding brand name that you wanted to, <laughs> and, right. you know, put it in a bad paper bag and, you know, sell it on the shelf. Right. And then Guess what? When the big boys rolled in and it got competitive and, and things started to mature, and you know, God forbid, flour went from four thousand a pound to fifteen hundred a pound. If you weren't a really good operator and you didn't have you know the ability to both buy and sell, in other words, if you were only a seller of flour, you couldn't buy any back for your stores, and therefore you couldn't do any you know kind of cross you know, cross buying arrangements, you know, that, that occur between these larger operators, you were pretty well screwed. And and we've seen that played out, play out in real time in Massachusetts and Pennsylvania and a whole bunch of other places. So that's my biggest realization that there is a formula here that works. Um, it's not a guarantee of success. You still have to be able to execute, but I've seen the formula that's really successful and it, it's, it's no, accident that the guys who are um, executing the best with the best margins are, you know, have that, have that formula. So in certain states, the, well, you had mentioned assets across different states, you know, in cannabis, you can't really cherry pick assets though, right? Like you have to, like, is, or am I mistaken on that one? What do you mean? Um, so say you have a company that's in like three different states that has two operations in one state. You can't pick one of those operations and say, we'll buy that. Or can I mean, sure, sure you can. I mean, you know, it's, it's so, yeah, look, I mean, uh, you know, we, we, uh, um, for one of our big MSO clients that I won't mention, you know, they had, you know, one, one asset in a state that was, you know, a bit of an orphan and they decided, look, we're, we don't think that we're ever going to get vertical in this state. We don't think it makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, can you help us think through kind of what valuation would look like for it? And if we can get paid the right price on it, you know, we would exit. And we were able to find somebody who was very aggressively looking for exactly what they had, you know, uh, uh, you know that asset in that location. And we, you know, were able to get a very good price and they, exit, they exited the state. Um, and, um, you know, we're seeing more of that. I mean, I think what, uh, what you saw Cureleaf do by pulling off Band-Aids 
and shutting down California, Colorado, and Oregon. I mean, you know, I, I, I mean, uh, those sound pretty radical, but those are smart business decisions. I mean, if you're, you know, if you're, if you, if you don't think you have a clear pathway to make those states uh, viable or, you know, more, more to the point, EBITDA positive, you know, contributors to free cash flow, then at some point, you know, you either need to sell them, exit, you know, figure out another way. So, so uh, uh, out of the current cannabis states, uh, current markets where cannabis is legal, like, are there any states in particular that you find most interesting or ones that excite you, I guess? Yeah. So um, typically, typically um, it's, it, you know, we, we, um, it, it's, it, it's, it's a pretty, it's a pretty good indicator because it's where our phones are ringing. Right. And, and, and uh, the states that people are really very laser focused on right now, uh, you know, Maryland obviously was a huge focus um, the transfer restrictions that were put in place, you know, with the July one deadline, uh, is going to put a little bit of a pall on uh, on what is going to be possible, you know, in the near future. There, as far as M and A, what you saw folks like Ascend, Terrasend, others get in right before the deadline of July first. Those weren't accidents. They were, you know, they were very, very uh, expeditious in trying to get those deals, uh, you know, under the, you know, under the, you know, under the. Uh, um, or, or in, in front of the, the uh, deadline. Um, I would say Ohio is very much top of mind. You know, people are very focused. A lot of people think that uh, Ohio, um, you know, could very likely be the next uh, domino to fall as far as adult use. Um, we're still seeing a lot of action in Missouri. Uh, Missouri has worked out better than anyone ever, you know, anyone could have imagined. Um, you know, I'm on the board of, of Greenlight Cannabis. Um, yeah. They're, you know, probably nip and tuck for number one or number two largest operator in the state. And, um, you know, it's um, it's amazing the, you know, the, the numbers that are that are that are coming out of the state. And, um, you know, we'll see how quickly that state sort of starts to mature. Uh, but, um, you know, we're still seeing a lot of interest for both retail and cultivation assets there. And if you take a look at it, really, you know, none of the big MSOs are there. So you you will see some additional action in uh, Missouri. Missouri was similar to Colorado, where uh, public companies could not own uh, cannabis assets in the state, you know, prior to the uh, change in the law. So, you know, we think we're, we're going to see some more action there. Um, um, I'd so, say... Brian, I want to jump... Yeah, I want to yeah. jump in because... Um, you're bringing up a lot of the, the newer states, like you mentioned, Missouri and, and Maryland, which just crossed over into adult use, Ohio, which you're projecting to be one of the next ones. What is keeping you maybe not so hot on like those states that have been around longer, like a Washington or a California or Arizona that have been have been open up on the West Coast? Like, is there or are there things that these states are setting up regulation wise that that maybe makes them better long-term investments than businesses that are operating in, in the West coast states. Yeah. Well, look, I mean, it's, it's, it's really all about, um, you know, the state by state regulations and how they've set up the structure of their programs. Um, you know, the, uh, for some of the early movers, Colorado, Washington, Oregon, California, 
you know, they virtually had no limits on uh, the number of licenses. I mean, at, at one point in time, there were 300 dispensaries in the city of, of Denver, Colorado. I mean, you know, I, I think we can all uh, argue that you don't need 300 dispensaries in the city, in the city of Denver. Um, you know, it, up until very recently, there were only 110 dispensaries in the state of Illinois, which has you know, double the population of Colorado. So where do you think you make money? Where you have 110 dispensaries or where you have, you know, 300 in one, in one city? Um so it was just extremely hard. Um, and, you know, candidly, you know, if, if we got calls from potential sellers of good single state assets in those states, none of our MSO clients wanted anything to do with them. I mean, no interest. Don't don't bother showing them to me. Don't you know, I mean, we, uh, candidly, we can't get people to look at, uh, at anything in, in, in Michigan either. Um, and it's, uh, because, you know, what they've done to their program is, you know, evolving to be pretty similar to what those other states did. I mean, there are over 600 dispensaries in the state of Michigan, you know, the density of, of, um, dispensaries is, is crazy. Um, you know, the price of wholesale has gone through the floor, you know, you started to see some, uh, some companies go under, you know, Green Peak's a pretty, a pretty prominent example. Uh, it's public knowledge they're in receivership and, and, um, you know, have, have got a big, you know, that's, that was a pretty big problem. That's the tip of the iceberg. There's lots of others that are walking dead, um, that are there. So, um, it's just, you know, we, we go where our buyers want us to go and we go where there are attractive, um, assets that we know we can find buyers for. So, that leads us to probably, you know, five or six states uh, that really rise to the top. You know, we still see uh, a fair amount of activity in Illinois. Um, we still see um, a fair amount of activity in Arizona. Um, but, yeah, for the most part, I mean, Oklahoma, you know, we wouldn't we wouldn't mm-hmm. spend five minutes on a deal in Oklahoma. Um, Michigan, <laughs> extremely difficult. You know, um, I'd say. The two that are probably the most surprising as far as how bad things have gotten are uh, Massachusetts and Pennsylvania. Um, in Pennsylvania, you know, everybody, uh, Pennsylvania was Ohio uh, a year and a half ago. Everybody, you know, every other phone call was about Pennsylvania. Um, everybody wanted to buy assets. Uh, every asset was hotly contested. Uh, people were outbidding each other, um, and, you know, stocks, you know, stock prices were quite a bit higher. So people could use some pretty puffed up currency in order to do some of those deals. But, um, right. you know, everyone got super excited that, uh, it was going to be the, you know, sort of best, best state to be in and, uh, flash forward a year later, year and a half later, um, everything got overbuilt. Uh, no one's very certain about adult use or any kind of timeline for adult use. Uh, there are at least three, probably soon to be four mothballed cultivation facilities that are, you know, large scale that are just literally, you know, collecting dust. Um, How big is, like, it's, it, it seems crazy that PA would be doing this. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, look, most, most of these wounds are self-inflicted. Um, you know, the, the state allowed, you know, the number of licenses that they allowed, but also, um, everyone wanted to get ahead of adult use. 
Um, in Illinois, if you recall, everybody got caught very flat-footed um, uh, when the Pritzker, you know, when the Pritzker administration came in. Uh, one of their top uh, agenda items was uh, to um, pass adult use, which they promptly did. And then they put an expedited timeline on rolling it out. When they rolled it out, there wasn't enough flour in the state. I mean, there were, you know, we would we would have, uh, you know, for for the medical menus, we had flour pretty much every day. But for the adult use menu, I mean, some some weeks only two or three days of the week would we have flour available. And we when, when we put it up on our website, you know, that morning they would be lined up for a block out the door. Um, it was crazy. I mean, and uh, people were like, well, hell, you know, PA is going to be the next one. We're going to, you know, we're going to, we're going to double our capacity in Pennsylvania because we're going to be ahead of this thing. Right. Yeah. And um, capital was flowing a lot more freely. Right. Uh, the sale leaseback guys were all being very aggressive. There, you know, there were cannabis lenders running around, you know, everybody had puffed up uh, equity prices. You know, people could kind of, kind of, kind of do all that. Now uh, everything's changing, you know, and, and it's changing in a good way. I mean, it's it's painful as hell because you know everyone who's watching their cannabis stock portfolio is just you know crying in their beer. But yeah. <laughs> but you know nature and I've, you know it's you know the way I the way I like to put it is you know nature is a self-correcting uh, system, right? So uh you know a fire you know hits a forest so that then you know new growth can grow back right so what's happening is uh there is no capital now to build these things out um in new jersey there are a whole bunch of cultivation licenses that were given out that will never be built because there's no money for it absolutely no money um if you went out right now and said, Hey, uh, I want to raise 20 million on a $25 million pre-money valuation to build out a new cultivation facility. People would laugh you out of the room. Um, just that that money's not there. Um, and, um, whereas two, three years ago, that money was there, you know, you could, you could find that money. Um, and, um, uh, you know, people have been burned. People have, you know, the, the cannabis funds, you know, we're not able to raise fund two, fund three or whatever. You know, and so the, there's a real paucity of capital available. So that's helping. Uh, the fact the fact that truly decided to to shut down their operation in Massachusetts. Yeah. Wow. You know. Wow. You know that you wouldn't have, you wouldn't have seen that two years ago, right? Would have never seen that two years ago. Um, yeah. But guess what? Um, she's not the only one. Other people are are you know quietly idling. You know some some of their grow rooms. Cureleaf took one of their facilities offline. Uh, people are taking capacity out of the system. Well, guess what? For the first time uh, in ages, we've seen the wholesale market in Massachusetts stabilize and start to get a little bit better. So, you know, it could happen, can happen, you know, um, it takes time. Yeah. You guys have been, you know, Solidum has been part of some major M&A work here, uh, you know, Notably, the Tesco Labs Columbia Care deal. Uh, you know, what can you tell us about that? You know, what role do you guys play in these types of dealings? And um, can you share any hurdles that seem to be uh, common? Um, you know, it's it's uh, it's it's painful. It's it. Well, I, I'll say a couple of general things. Um, uh, with with respect to the Cresco Columbia Care deal, yeah, it, it has been our you know our our. Uh, 
our honor and our privilege to, to be um, a financial advisor to Cresco Labs on that transaction and to, um, and to uh, report to the board on it. Uh, my partner, Aaron, manages the Cresco relationship mm -hmm. and um, has done just a ph phenomenal job uh, on that. Um, there's not really much I can tell you by way of update. There was a June 30 press release. Um, uh, it, that press release indicated that there'll be, you know, a, a further update. And I, I would expect in the next, you know, number of weeks, you know, you'll, you'll, you'll hear more about it. So can't, can't talk too much about it, but having lived through the grassroots, uh, Cureleaf deal and through the Cresco Columbia care deal, and a number of other deals. You know, the larger the deal with the uh, with uh, you know more states involved. You know, once you start getting to you know seven, eight, ten, eleven states involved, where there are overlaps and other things, now you've got different discussions going on with different state regulators that take forever, that take a long period of time, and um, and and the regulations in individual states are not standing still. They're, they're evolving and changing. They're updating the regs. They're doing other things. So, you know, one of the things that happened on the grassroots um, Cureleaf deal was that, you know, certain rules changed in Illinois. And as a result, certain assets had to be carved out of the deal. We had to figure out how to, uh, how to account for that in valuation. And, and that's simply because, you know, the deal took a year to get through all its regulatory approvals. If we could have been, if we could have gotten it done in three months, boom, we wouldn't have had to worry about any of that. But because it stretched out for so long, okay, now we're dealing with some changes in regulations in individual states. Now we got to go back. Do we have to reopen the merger agreement? If we re reopen the merger agreement, do we have to go back to our shareholders again and have them revote the deal? Probably, probably. Right. You know, and so all this, you know, gets complicated, uh, gets expensive. Uh, you know, there's a saying that, you know, time kills a lot of, a lot of good deals. Um, you know, and I, I absolutely believe in that. Um, so, um, just the sheer complexity of some of these large, you know, the, of the largest of the deals, you know, makes them more challenging by, by nature. Let, let's start looking forward a, a, a little bit more. And I'm wondering, you know, you, you you discussed uh, you know the need for 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 organizations to have really solid operations right now, um, but I think what everybody like especially like we have a lot of retail investors on our side they're looking for you know the light at the end of the tunnel and when when I say that what does that mean to you is that safe banking access is that um, you know a rescheduling of cannabis what do you think is going to ultimately be maybe that that turning point that the industry has been dying for for the last couple of years. Yeah. So, look, I, I don't think, I mean, you know, we, we would all like the one silver bullet uh, event to occur, uh, which uh, then creates a really positive environment for uh, cannabis investors going forward. Um, in my thinking, it's probably going to take a combination of a number of things. And I think the, the good news is that I do believe that there is a, uh, a uh, you know, a positive path forward uh, that I could paint uh, that would create, you know, again, multiple catalysts that I think will, will combine to, to uh, make for a better environment. Um, I mentioned one of them, which is just the fact that um, the, the fact that uh, um, because uh, 
capital scarce. You're seeing uh, a real slowdown in the, in the amount of build-outs and uh, capacity additions. And, uh, and, and in fact, you're seeing some capacity come out of the system. That's positive, okay? That's, that's gonna help uh, in individual states. Um, uh, for a lot of the larger MSOs, they're really uh, at the end, you know, or very, very close to the end of their CapEx cycles. No, they really don't need to invest additional CapEx. You know, they've really built out what they need. Um, they'll be very judicious. And you're, you're seeing that. You're seeing all of them uh, are very thoughtful and cautious about um, how they justify additional capital and what kind of return on invested capital they're looking for in order to make those additional investments. Um, safe banking absolutely would help. Um, uh, and, um, you know, the ability to uplist or, or whether or not the uh, exchanges would um, deem that because that uh, because safe banking passed, they therefore can allow uplistings uh, would be you know a, a, a massive catalyst and a, and a huge help. Um, it's a very unusual situation that you have this animal named MSOS that really you know dominates the trading in the market and therefore the the tails wagging the dog as far as as far as how these stocks trade. Um, I think if um, the FDA uh, follows through and makes its recommendation by December 2nd to the Biden administration with respect to descheduling or rescheduling rather, probably from schedule one to possibly schedule three. Um, and, you know, hand in glove with those events is the demise or the elimination of 280E. 280E, I don't think most people really understand what a toxic uh, element it is for cannabis uh, operators. Um, you know, it, it's one of the few industries where EBITDA doesn't mean anything because, you know, the, the tax situation is so adverse because of 280E. Um, and then, you know, I'd ultimately, um, there's there's something that I kind of, that I kind of um, like to call cannabis 3.0. Um, uh, and cannabis 3.0 is, you know, like, you know I'll, I'll give you an example. You know, like one of my one of my wife's girlfriends will pull me aside and say, "Hey, um, you know, I used to take Ambien. I hated taking Ambien. Um, I started taking a five milligram gummy before bed, and and it's it's changed my life. And I just wanted to give you know that or whatever, whatever. And it's the last person on planet Earth that I would have expected whatever you know use uh, a gummy before bed, candidly." Um, and it's very anecdotal, you know, it's like this particular gummy works for me. Okay. No idea why this one versus another one or whatever, or she just found a brand that she liked or whatever, whatever it was. Right. Um, I mean, face it, there has been no money, zero money for any kind of research in this industry, uh, that would have gone around, um, you know, clinical trials, double blind clinical trials, efficacy, anything like that, because, None of these companies have any money for that at all after 280E is paid. None of them, zero. Um, once something like something like uh, rescheduling occurs, 280E goes away, and now you've got big pharma, big liquor, you know, big beer, big tobacco, whatever at the table. Okay, a billion dollars at a research project is you know a, a throw a throwaway for them, mm -hmm. um, and. Now you're going to have now you're going to have something that that you know hey you know we have real reasons why we know 
why this CBN, CBG, THC product helps you sleep. Um, and it's, you know, and, and, and we're going to put a marketing budget, you know, behind it as well. And it's going to have, you know, a sort of a national branding, uh, you know, those types of things I think are game changers. And I think, you know, there, there were all these assumptions that, that the soccer moms were going to somehow say cannabis, you know, that <laughs> instead of coming home and having a Chardonnay, you know, Susie soccer mom was going to come home and have a couple hits off of her vape pen. And, you know, that was going to really, you know, save this market. In reality, okay, maybe Susie Soccer Mom does do that, but she does that, like, very occasionally, okay? And um, and uh, still, you know, 80% of the cannabis is sold to 20% of the people that use it. And they use a lot. And they like it, right? And yeah. so having things that are really tailored for certain use cases, whether it's anxiety, sleep, you know, some pain, other things that aren't just anecdotal. It's somebody slaps on a brand and says it, it helps, you know, but actually they, they can prove that it helps is going to be a huge, a huge difference and potentially could open up the health insurers to pick up health insurance coverage for some of these products as well, which by the way, we are seeing in Germany and other places. So I have a number of things, you know, I, 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 those are like five or six things. Any, any, any combination of two or three would be extremely helpful. If they all came to pass, God forbid, you know, we'd be, you know, we'd be very happy guys. And and girls. Like, <laughs> I was going to say just, you know, before we wrap it up here, you know, we always talk safe banking with everybody on here and you just mentioned it. Um, you know, what do you think the odds are this gets done this year? I'm, I'm, I'm a huge skeptic because I've had my brains beaten in on this issue too many times. You know, I, I, uh, no, I chose to believe, I chose to believe certain people, uh, in my circles who claimed to be in quote in the room with, you know, Booker and Schumer and, you know, it's going to get to the floor and it's going to get done and the certain things are going to happen. And it proved to all be, candidly BS or I don't know what we can say on these podcasts, but whatever. It, Any it way was, you want to call it. <laughs> it was complete friggin' bullshit, right? And and, and my <laughs> my conclusion, uh not to be a real cynic, but my conclusion is that there just wasn't enough money involved. I mean, the, the last time it crashed and burned, you know, when they decided to put it on the defense appropriations bill and Schumer and Booker were all in, we're going to get this done. We're going to get this all done. I'm convinced it was just a very easy trading sardine to get something else that they wanted in that bill because there just wasn't enough money behind it. There wasn't, I mean, you know, sorry guys, but uh, we had three guys ahead of you in line with huge pocketbooks and their issues came before yours. Plain and simple, very easy. So, um, I, you know, I'd, I'd like to be an optimist here, but I'll just have to believe it when I see it. Well, Brian, this has been a, a great conversation. I, I think we've you've opened up our eyes to a lot, uh, a number of things on here and given us some good stuff to, to watch out for over the next couple of months. Um, is, before we let you go, is there anything else that we didn't cover on this conversation that you want to make sure our, our listeners know either um, about your thoughts on the industry or on Solidum Capital Advisors? Well, yeah. So I would say, I would say the the one thing we really didn't talk about is the 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 biggest growth area of our business right now is on the restructuring advisory side. We're actually involved in uh, three or four different assignments. We uh, we're actually 
Um, we have a crisis manager uh, in place um, at one of our companies uh, that we're advising and, you know, helping assist the board and, and uh, um, cutting costs and, and um, you know, restructuring the debts of the company. Um, I'm, you know, I'm happy to say that I think we've stabilized the patient. I think he, I, I think that one's going to make it through. So we're pretty excited about that. Um, and uh, we're seeing more uh, work coming in from either lenders that have issues, lessors that have issues, uh, et cetera. I don't think that's a, you know, one-off kind of thing. I think that's probably a trend uh, where that'll be a, a, a decent slug of the, of the work that we're working on over the next, you know, year to two years. Awesome. Well, Brian Chinderley, Solidum Capital Advisors. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it, guys. Another thanks to Brian Chinderley of Solidum Capital Advisors for joining us on this episode today. If you want to learn more about Solidum Capital, you can visit their website at solidumcapital.com. That's S-O-L-I-D-U-M Capital. And as always, thanks for listening to The Green Rush. If you want to chat with us, you can find us on Twitter with the handle at the underscore Green Rush or on Instagram at the Green Rush underscore podcast. You can drop us an email at greenrush at kcsa.com. We love your feedback, guest ideas, topics that you want us to cover, all that stuff. And don't forget to subscribe to The Green Rush in your favorite podcatcher. That's one take, Shay. One take. <laughs>